What follows is not a paid advertisement. I guess you could call it an unpaid advertisement, but it's a short conversation with my friend, Quamar Thompson. She runs a business called Thompson Education Consulting, and they're terrific, and you should check them out. But uh, she had this thing happen last weekend, and I want to publicize not the thing that happened, but what resulted and an opportunity for you to join her in an amazing conversation coming up. If you want to skip right to the episode, head uh, just after six minutes. Enjoy. Tell me about this thing that happened last weekend. So last weekend, I was hosting a virtual event. Um, the host platform was Zoom, and then it was streaming live to my YouTube. The event was really centered around talking about Black women and education. We had hundreds of people tuned in. Um, I had all the security protocols that Zoom recommends, and then some. And someone still was able to, 30 minutes into the virtual meeting, um, hack in, actually take control. So I had to rest control back. It took a few minutes for me to do that. Took control and flashed pornography of white people painting themselves in brown paint, um, flashing the words hate and word um, and singing a song that said, I hate and words. And that was our reality of what it means to Zoom while Black. It really hit home for me that Zoom bombing, racist Zoom bombing, is actually domestic terrorism. And we really need to elevate it to the level of a cyber hate crime. People get this weird idea that... um... I mean, maybe it's not so weird. It's like the way that it's being talked about. It's like, a, you know, something that happens to college kids on, uh, you know, and and it's uh, almost like it's um, something cute. But um, but it's not. Uh, it is absolutely a, an, an act of hate and, and terror. And in this case, um, it was an amazing conversation that you um are producing and the reason that we're talking about it on this show um is a to build the community that supports this dialogue because i think one of the things you've described to me is that this community not only were they not turned away outside of the trauma that comes from something like this happening, but they have really rallied behind you to help build an even bigger and better dialogue. So tell us about the event and let's, let's bring as many, um, as many people to this dialogue as we can. Yeah, absolutely. So it is a series called I'm a black woman. Yes, I matter. It started uh, last year after I produced a award-winning play on in the East Village in New York City called Sisters on Fire. And we really wanted to bring the dialogue that was happening into the play into the community um, and to really have lifting voices of black experience, really elevating black women in their particular areas of expertise. And everyone is welcome to attend. So it's not just a preaching to the choir type of conversation. It's really designed so that it is everyone can come, everyone can learn, everyone can build community. And most importantly, it's not just discussion, it's about creating sustainable and actionable change. So obviously, as a result of the pandemic, we went virtual with our first one being last 
month, which would have been May, um, and it was really about COVID-19 and exposing the inequities. And we talked about it from a political standpoint, healthcare, spirituality, et cetera. So many people were so interested in what happened and engaging in that dialogue, not only here in the US, but across the world, that we decided to create it into a virtual monthly series. And the next one in the series was Black Women in Education. And that's the event that was vitriolically Zoom bombed with hate. The next one um, is coming up. We are not going to be stopped. We will not be silenced. Um, as you mentioned, we people have really galvanized. Um, after the event ended, we got 100 more SRSVPs to really say, you tried to shut us up, but we're not going to shut up. We're not going to back down. This conversation is so vital and important to have that nothing is going to stop us from having it. Um, I don't have the exact date yet, but it will be in the next couple of weeks. And we'll link to that in the show notes at some point. So we're going to link to that in the show notes. And in the meantime, um, is there social media that folks can follow um, in order to get the announcement when it comes through? You can follow Twitter and IG. It's Tech Talk Tech Solve. Tech is spelled T-E-C for Thompson Education Consulting. So again, that's at T-E-C, talk, T-E-C, solve. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. And then if you're also on LinkedIn, you can just find me at Kwamara, K-W-A-M-A-R-A. Thompson. I am so glad to have you on to talk to people about what happened. All of the links will be uh, in the show notes and I will share over the Facebook page for No Such Thing podcast. Kamara, thanks for joining and telling us about the event. I am really excited for you and the community who's going to benefit a ton from this dialogue. Thank you so much for having me, Mark, and your support has always been greatly appreciated. So thank you. This is No Such Thing a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. I've been learning a lot about this dude, Ronald Mace. Mace is an architect. He was widely known as father of universal design. And what I came to learn is that Mace was diagnosed with polio when he was nine. And he spent most of his life after that in a wheelchair. And the reason that universal design, which he came to much later on as his career in architecture and design really grew and took off, is that the principles of universal design is that as we grow the built world around us, our differences shouldn't be about adaptation in the built world, but rather designed into it. In other words, in the spectrum of abilities, we should all be considered. And that whatever's built for us should also consider our abilities. What does any of this have to do with this episode? Well, way back, I did a power-up on universal design for learning, and it turns out that UDL, which is favorite jargon in the context of K-12 education lately, if you do the unscientific thing that I often do, which is to search Google Trends, 
and see where it's being searched. It's especially in the Northeast uh, being talked about an awful lot. They, we have a lot of researchers and folks um, at Harvard Graduate School of Education and elsewhere who um, have done a lot of work in this, not to mention that uh, there are organizations like CAST in Massachusetts that are really premier organizations for training in universal design for learning. So meet my guest this week. I'm Meg Ray, advisor to Cornell Tech K-12. Hi, I'm Maya Israel. I'm an associate professor of educational technology at the University of Florida. Ron Summers, executive director of computer science education at the New York City Department of Education. It's kind of a who's who of folks studying UDL in the context of computer science education. These folks all have a pretty outstanding perspective about how UDL plays out both in the context of research and practice. And I can't wait for you to get into this conversation because that word practice might be what's most important if you take away nothing else from this conversation. UDL is not yet another subject for professional development that where you check a box, gain a certification maybe, and move on. UDL is truly a practice in the sense that yoga or meditation or uh, a sport maybe you've been working on for years and years and are still really honing your abilities at is. So same way that these things are all a practice, UDL is that way. And if nothing else, I hope this conversation is a doorway for you to discover a practice in UDL. If you are an educator of any form, but particularly in digital learning or computer science education, too often UDL is isolated to incoming practitioners in education who are focused on quote-unquote special education. UDL is the practice that compels all of us, like Ronald Mace, to think about our built world. In the context of education, that means the built world of curriculum and learning experience in accommodating all of our abilities, not creating special access, but being inclusive of every single member of the learning environment that you run. Because it's my duty and because it helps a tremendous amount, I want to ask if you haven't, go back to wherever you downloaded the podcast, rate, like, review the podcast. It means a tremendous amount. And it helps us spread the word and engage more listeners in no such thing. The reason we want to do that is the wider we grow our footprint, the more it helps us bring in sponsors, funders, folks who want to help us pay the bills and keep the conversation going. If you haven't already, like us on Facebook, No Such Thing Podcast. And take the listener survey, which is always the pinned post at the top. If I haven't said it in a while, I'm really grateful that you're listening. I love this audience. 
I want to know more about you. So give us some feedback and join the conversation on Facebook. Without further ado, enjoy the conversation. Hold on. <laughs> okay, deep breath. What? What's the matter? It's glitching. It keeps on glitching. Just stop, stop, stop. What do you have for your coat? That so far. Okay. For the rain. For the rain, please. Let me see if that's the same coat I have. No, for the rain, it's because I'm trying to make sounds. Rain sounds. Uh, that's too many rain sounds, just letting you know. That's too many. And it, yeah, the computer's... What will happen if you put too many? Uh, it will, like, kind of glitch, I think. Uh, no, because... I, <laughs> Huh, I wish my dad was here. It's not working because it's good. Maya, thank you again so much for joining. Uh, I just want to kick it off by having you walk us through what we just heard. Um, I know this has, has been a, a huge part of the uh, work that you're doing in the last few years. And, and I'm so grateful to have you just talk us through it. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, that's actually a really wonderful video to start with because uh, any of us who do work in computer science education uh, have heard these types of conversations between children. And so um, that particular video that you showed um, had a couple of kids who were sitting next to each other and one was clearly frustrated. So she was trying to get the penguin to be standing in the rain and making the rain sound like rain. And uh, clearly she was having some struggles and frustration. And that was a conversation between two students where she's trying to communicate uh, that she's having a problem. Um, and this idea of it's glitching, it's just glitching is just really uh, showcasing the level of frustration that she's experiencing in that moment. So, um, we have two students. I want to have you describe these students specifically in a moment, but I'm going to set the scene a little bit. Two students, they're working uh, as as peers at one monitor, right? Mm -hmm. uh, on, the, on the monitor, they have uh, the Scratch platform, which everybody who doesn't know what Scratch is can go and check out at scratch.org. Um, and they're working through some, they're, they're dragging and dropping some blocks of code to try and make sprites do a thing. Um, does that sound, sound right? What am I, what am I uh, leaving out about particularly tell me about what this classroom looks like and what these two students, uh, who they are. Sure. So this is a general education fourth grade classroom. And the task here, they were working in Google CS first um, in the Scratch programming environment. Um, and what's interesting to know about these two students is that uh, they were given the task and the expectation that they're going to collaborate together. So um, oftentimes what we see is that students who are particularly experiencing like significant significant frustration is that they're immediately going to the teacher and expecting the teacher to solve the problem for them. In fact, insisting upon that. And so uh, we've been working with the teachers to um, 
have the kids um, engage in more productive conversations when they are experiencing frustration. So a lot of what happens is a student's frustrated and the peer is supposed to say, what are you trying to do? What have you tried already? So you could hear a little bit of that conversation happening uh, between the two students, but it's clearly not uh, resulting in uh, any kind of uh, productive problem solving at the moment. I, that that uh, my, if you can have a favorite part of that recording, uh, mine is the end where she says, ah, I wish my dad was here. <laughs> yeah, I wish um, she had said, I wish my mom was here. <laughs> is that what he yes. said? No, that's what I wish it. Oh, oh, yes. I was like, oh my god, did I did I somehow uh, did I somehow hear that wrong? Um, yeah. How I, how? Uh, but 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 tell me about that. You and I had talked about this at one point. That that um, there's a what I find so interesting about that is that the the tools that um, this group is trying to work toward for practitioners help to sort of reframe the role of the educator in the room in ways that that in some ways and you tell me if i'm wrong but in some ways do create a more the more open sort of uh, safe dialogue that one might have with a sibling or a guardian or um somebody in their life where there isn't that necessarily that sort of sage, sage-like role of, I have all the answers. Um, do, do you, did you perceive that when you first heard it? Like, does that feel to me like I need a, um, I need a working partner? Cause that's what I heard when I heard it was, was sort of like, I, I need my thought partner here who usually can help me work through this. Uh, I, I think yes and no. Uh, in one hand, uh, we do want to encourage students to problem solve independently, right? So there's a tendency yeah. immediately to go to somebody for help. And so emp empowering students to work independently is an important piece of this. And to know that frustration is okay. Uh, so what makes struggle productive versus non-productive, I think is a, an important conversation that we have. It's important to note that both of these students that traditionally during their regular um, classroom experience struggle a lot with academics. Um, in this particular case where you're watching to be creative and be able to handle frustration to a certain extent, um, there are a lot of strengths that they have that they may not be able to demonstrate in a more traditional instructional setting. So yes, on the one hand, uh, that thought partner is really important. Um, on the other hand, we're trying to provide students with the tools to empower them to be able to problem solve independently as well. So we work a lot on metacognitive strategies and strategies for self-regulation at the same time. Um, and then to add another layer of complexity to it, um, I think within computer science education in particular, there is a little bit of a false tension between wanting kids to be creative problem-solving solvers on their own and then offering explicit instruction from the teacher. Um, I say it's a false tension because I don't feel like it needs to be. So at some point as a teacher, you recognize that this child needs a particular level of instruction, explicit instruction to help them be more independent. Um, and so that's a conversation that I think oftentimes uh, we don't see the tension in classrooms, but I think from a, um, 
the conversations that we often have at the university are with other computer science education researchers, uh, we do have those conversations around, should we offer some level of explicit instruction? Should we let kids uh, struggle independently? And where is that balance? Mm. So um, I'm debating whether we want to listen to another another recording. Uh-huh. So let's let's listen to the second recording, and then and then I want to I want to talk to to uh, Meg as well about uh, what what we're hearing here. Hang on. What did it sound like? All of the sounds are playing all at the same time, weren't they? Can you imagine if four of us all tried to talk at the same time? Would you be able to hear anything? Okay. Same thing in Scratch, right? How many sounds was it all playing at the same time? Um, like six. Yeah. And it was all going all over each other, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Are you done with it? You want a badge? All right. You gonna write for me? I'm gonna write one new thing that you learned. Do not put lots of blocks in the same thing. Do not put lots of blocks in the same thing. I love that. Do not put lots of blocks in the same thing. So Meg, you are somebody who, uh, when for for those who haven't heard the the uh, obviously Meg is a return visitor to this show. Uh, last time we chatted was about um, your new book, which uh, I display proudly. Uh, code this game right behind me on the shelf. Um. When people ask me, uh, I need somebody who can help us, who can really help us with CS instruction and understand both the role of, of the uh, technical um, in this context, but also the role of student. Can you help me with questions about the right platforms or the right strategies and resources? Um, I point to Meg Ray. So uh, Meg, thanks for joining this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, trusted advisor both to uh, this podcast and um, Mark in his day job and Cornell Tech. I'm curious what you hear as a CS educator. Um, what do you hear happening in that video for somebody who's like, yeah, it just sounds like two kids hating on. Um, actually, this, I think, is a, an, a, an adult and a student. Um, but but. In either of these recordings, I think to a, a layperson, um, they might uh, throw up their hands and be like, see, this is why it's just so hard and this is so frustrating and, and we shouldn't be putting this stuff in front of students. But w- what do you hear when you hear this? Uh, so I hear um, 
a classroom where the teacher has been um, scaffolding so that all students can uh, do rigorous learning activities. Um, so I'm going to build on what Maya was saying about this false tension between um, direct instruction and constructivism, uh, inquiry-based uh, activities, that sort of thing. Um, we want all students to engage in rigorous inquiry-based learning. Um, but for many of our students, we want to, uh, we need them to be able to access that and not just throw them into the deep end. Um, so the students are engaging each other, going back and forth, but they're using a script and um, questions and sentence stems that the teacher uh, has provided as a starting place for them. And in the second one, um, the student is uh, talking through their computational thinking out loud uh, to the teacher and then being asked to put it into writing. Um, and I think those are just a couple examples of ways that we can um, scaffold more uh, open-ended, rigorous activities for all students, um, especially those that we traditionally exclude from those activities. Um, before I lose, I, I miss my opportunity to come, come back to this. I do want to ask you, um, Maya, the, you explained, um, in that, after that first recording, what I think, uh, I think we were referring to as the collaborative discussion framework, right? Which mm -hmm. is pretty widely available. Um, can you just say a touch more about, you, you mentioned the first question of what are you trying to do? Um, before we, before I um, dig into uh, Ron and ask him the hard questions of, of um, you know, how, how we even consider this in the context of also trying to get educators' heads around computer science, um, can you talk about the collaborative discussion framework just a touch more and, and also um, throw people to where they can find it? Sure, absolutely. So um, I'm going to give credit where credit is due first. So um, the collaborative discussion framework emerged from our work with a couple of elementary school teachers um, who are now um, actually one of them, Todd Lash, is one of my PhD students now, um, and then Minsu Park. And the idea is that we want to encourage kids to have productive conversations. Um, and a major part of that is because uh, we do know that uh, Adaptive help seeking is very, very important and thinking about your own thinking is really important. So whereas before a student might get frustrated and say, oh, this stinks. And then somebody would come and say, oh, OK, let me help you with that. Um, we wanted students to be able to have more productive conversations. So the collaborative discussion framework is a series of questions and sentence starters that students are taught to use, starting with um, what have you tried already? So I've tried to do X. What have you already, or what are you trying to do? What have you tried already? What would happen if? So these series of questions where students are able to talk about what the problem is will help them think through what some of the solutions might be. Um, you can find the collaborative discussion framework on our CTRL website. And I don't know if you have show notes, but I can send that to you. 
Oh, we have show notes. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna put it there, and I'm also going to, with your blessing, I'm also going to link to um, the recordings, which I would imagine are um, yep. also great fodder for anyone in a district who um, might be considering um, computer science and UDL, and um, maybe trying to help your colleagues realize how these things come into play in, in authentic contexts. So, um, Ron, when, uh, educators say to the district, um, you have to be kidding me. You want us to learn, (laughs) you want us to learn to teach computer science and you're going to, you're going to slather on there, um, this UDL stuff. How do you respond to that? So there's a fear, of course, when any school, any teacher, any admin hears that phrase computer science. I think a key piece that helps them digest it a bit better is making sure we say the phrase computer science education, right? Because they think of computer science as this heavy, complicated, very specific, nuanced use of computers and making the robot talk versus at the education piece, which is something they already know how to do. So when we start talking about education in general terms, right, and just take the CS out a little bit, then we can start talking about just the idea of pedagogy and access and meeting learners where they are in a general sense. And then how do we apply that learning and mastery that most of our teachers already have to pretty much just a new subject area, which happens to be computer science, right? And I think having that context and that first conversation is huge to getting a school to just kind of put their guard down and say, okay, I think we can do this. Tell me more. Hmm. It's exciting. I, I wonder um, at this point in time, um, you know, we're talking about the paradigm of, of pedagogy and access and I wonder just just to hear from you about what what you feel are the stakes right now as it relates to um, a willingness on the part of educators and districts and even policymakers um, to support things like uh, UDL and other literacies we're going to talk about um, at this moment. So I'll start with a little story. Um, I'm an educator, and I will consider myself a lifelong educator until the day I die. And my mother was a special education teacher. And one of the key lessons she taught me before I ever taught my first class was that every student has accommodation needs. And that just the label of special ed versus general ed was actually a disservice to the idea of teaching because it led us to stop thinking about the accommodations that all children need. UDL, to me, in the context of this conversation is important because at its most simplest, in its simplest level, it's about access. And it's about asking yourself the question, how do you reach everyone in a way that they need, right? And I think that's very important to applying to the idea of computer science and equity and reaching for all because for CS in New York City, There's a disconnect in this conversation around access um, when it comes to reaching for all and equitable practices. 
Uh, we happened to deliver a training last summer where we we took some we sent out some surveys and got some feedback from teachers. And the general um, takeaway was, why are we learning about equity, equitable practices, reaching for all when we're here to learn about computer science? And that disconnect is one that has been really tough in the landscape because folks aren't necessarily tying the importance of computer science education and building a, a more robust thinker to the idea of equity and access, right? And UDL is connected to that because it's the same exact concept, right? It's about reaching for all. It's about equitable practices for students and giving them what they need where they are and that we're actually married and we just don't know it, right? CS education in New York City mm -hmm. and our mission through the initiative is married to these foundational concepts and universal um, design learning because we are trying to make sure everyone gets what they need, especially those who aren't represented at the table, um, and making sure that we're stopping, reflecting, and thinking about that practice because sustainability is a little bit bigger uh, than simply just um, implementing CS in your classroom. It's about thinking about what are the long-term ramifications of making sure equity is happening every single year across every single grade band for every student, including students with disabilities, NRLs, and so on. That was great. Meg, go ahead. Yeah, um, I just wanted to jump on that. Uh, I thought it was such a good point. And just to add that, um, I mean, one, there is a particular reason that equity is um, such a big piece of computer science. And that's because of historically and presently who has been excluded from it, as well as the type of power <laughs> that it wields in our society. Um, so that's one piece. Mm. But I also think we, as the idea of school in general, we have it backwards. We would hope, ideally, one day that universal design for learning, um, culturally responsive and sustaining education, racial literacy, translanguaging, that these things are bedrock uh, to teacher training, that these things are just a natural part of any subject and that CS is what we have to worry about, but we're not, we're just not at that place. Education is not in that place. Um, mm -hmm. If we were there one day at that ideal, mm -hmm. uh, we wouldn't no. have to worry so much about the cognitive load on teachers. Um, but now we do, and we have to ask them, take on this new subject and we're going to teach you all of this pedagogy so that you can give access to all of your learners and give all of them yeah. what they need, which Ron, mm -hmm. I loved that uh, definition. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if you guys can respond to a, um, here, here's an analogy that I've wondered whether makes sense for us in, in, um, as we think about growing, our work as educators. Um, I really like it in, in spite of it being sometimes co-opted by what um, some people feel are, are like the syrupy arts of uh, yoga and meditation. And, um, you know, there, there is a um, in, in Buddhism, there's, there is this idea that um, Buddhism is not a thing you believe it's a thing you do. Right. And, I really like the idea of practice, right, in that I feel like sometimes too often 
um, in any kind of professional growth, we think, well, I just, I just don't have time to, to go to the place and download this thing and, and get these skills because it's just too much of an investment. Do you guys think that if we think of, of things like UDL as more of a practice, a place where we start as beginners and we grow expertise over time, um, that it might be more palatable and more uh, grokkable to be a geek uh, for a second to, to educators who were trying to motivate to get in there? Um, I can answer that if that's okay. Um, that's exactly the way that uh, Meg and I uh, bring UDL into professional development. And so, for example, uh, we often start with, okay, where are you as a teacher right now? What are the pieces of universal design for learning that you might recognize in your own practice, right? So it is an action. Um, it's based on the belief that we really do want to meet the needs of all learners. Um, but whenever we think about teacher development, teacher growth, um, we're all along a path, right? So it's not that I could go in or Meg could go in and teach you what UDL is, and then you can enact that in your classroom. So there are a couple of things to unpack that, right? One is to recognize that this is a, a, a process where you're enacting practice, practice and you're reflecting on that practice. And over time, you're becoming more comfortable with different aspects of universal design for learning. The other piece is that there's no such thing as a UDL lesson. Um, as a teacher, and I was—I started off as a special education teacher, um, and uh, working both in inclusive co-taught classrooms and in more segregated environments. But every time I came into a classroom, UDL looked different depending on who the students are, what the content area is, and where we where my goals were for learning. And so. Um, it makes it a lot more complicated in terms of professional development, but it also recognizes that teachers are coming into um, universal design for learning and computer science education with a certain set of expertise already. So recognizing the knowledge that they have and the practice that they're currently engaging in and mo moving teachers from that into in a, more you know, creative uses of universal design and looking at these three principles that we have that have different guidelines. And so what does this mean for this particular lesson for these students that you're now working with? So I absolutely think it's a do, it's not a belief, although it does rest on that on those beliefs. And I would love to connect to what Maya said. Um, and I wanna throw two terms out here. Um, the idea of practice versus process, um, that's huge in education because we have a lot on our plate, right? A teacher has a ton on her plate. And, you know, we tend to sometimes become process oriented to be able to get through, right? We're trying to teach sometimes 120 students and process becomes our best friend. But the idea of practice has been something that I think has been a lifelong challenge for education because the practice of delivering quality education is much harder than the process of delivering, right? And I think that connects so um, perfectly to UDL because um, Christy Crawford and I um, made a very conscious decision around how did the word equity play out in our school system versus the, what we're calling it now, which is equitable practices. Equity became process oriented 
And just as Maya said, it was, all right, can you give me the equity lesson? Can you give me the equity modification mm. that I can just apply across my entire unit? Mm. And it's not that. It's more around thinking about equitable um, practices and how do you take that UDL piece that worked for Johnny and then think about what Sarah needs and then thinking about CRSC from the same context. All right, Johnny needed this, Sarah needed that. How does CSR, a CRSC play in this? And that's the harder piece. Practice is hard. Process is easy. But once you understand the practice, you can develop the processes you need as an educator that meet the needs of kids. Ron, explain CRSE for folks who don't know it but are going to learn about it in in future episodes. Um, so I will simplify a little bit for this conversation, but it's culturally responsive, sustainable education. And the idea in its simplest form is we're thinking about the culture, the background, and the experiences of students in our classroom and how the experience that we create in our classroom are leveraging their backgrounds, leveraging their culture, because education doesn't really become something that you can grasp onto unless there is representation in the stories that, that we're exploring and the stories that we're able to tell. So an easy example is it's really hard to get into, let's say, a math problem about slope and speed if my example is a white male skiing down a slope. Mm -hmm. I probably need something that's more palatable for me as a male of color, not saying I don't understand the concept of skiing, but it just may not be something that is, this just not what I do. So thinking yep. about background is huge in education because it's not about where the teacher comes from necessarily. It's like, what do my students need for this learning to stick, for it to be real, and for them to take it to the next level? Yeah. I'm going to um, uh, toss it to Meg, who I know wanted to respond to both of those fantastic points. But I'll say in the meantime that um, culture responsive pedagogy and practice has been a, a theme on the show um, for a while. And, and as part of this episode, I'm going to put in the show notes also links to other conversations we've had with um, folks like Chris Emden and um, at Ajapong and and others, um, just so that everything is available in one place. Meg, you were about to um, also respond to this question. Um, just that uh, at the heart of practice is a mindset shift, it, and it's an ongoing mindset shift. Um, it's not static. Um, and so that reflectiveness um, and that shift is core uh, to any of these lenses <laughs> that we put on our practice. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I just wanted to point that out. For a lot of educators who have been, um, you know, in practice, you know, maybe an entire career. Um, for that educator who says, you know, look, uh, especially K-12 education, not unlike any other field, we have um, this jargon that comes up in cycles and it's come up as personalization or, or personalized learning. It's come up as differentiation. It's come up in all these different ways. Like, I don't need this because UDL is no different than these other things that have come before it. And I'm expert already. Um what do you say to that educator? 
Sure. So um, what I would say to that educator is that um, in one respect, there's a little bit of truth to that. There's nothing in universal design for learning that is new. But what universal design for learning does for me as a teacher is it provides me with a framework for thinking about practices that support all kids. So I might be doing pieces of universal design for learning without actually recognizing it, but when I'm using the framework, it makes me really think about all of the dots and how to connect them. And if I'm not thinking about particular areas. And let me give you an example. One of the things that we're gonna be doing with professional development is a sticky note activity where we're mm. identifying different pieces of UDL. And every time that Meg and I have done this with teachers, we find some gaps, gaps in the way that we're addressing UDL, gaps in the way that as we're talking to teachers, they're not noticing. And so then we're able to say, okay, what are those gaps and why do they exist? And do they exist because we don't feel like those are things that our students need? Or do they exist because we as educators need some additional information to help us implement those? And so even within those, I don't think that those are new things, but we as educators can't have every tool in our toolkit. And so what mm. UDL allows me to do is to think, do I have the toolkits that I, the tools in my toolkit to address the needs of all of my students? Mm. And I would add on to that. Uh, when we talk about differentiation, um, I think for me, a lot of times they think about this three-tier system and having to plan uh, three different tiers for every single activity. Um, and it's a huge time investment. And um, well, I won't say that UDL is not because good teaching is a time investment and requires time to plan. You do not have to uh, plan three, the equivalent of three different lessons. You don't have to set up the equivalent of three different activities uh, for everything. There can be a place for tiering, but that's not what uh, UDL is. I would love to take um, the rest of everybody's day to talk more about UDL, but I won't. I do, I want to uh, end on, uh, end this conversation with a question. Let's Let's pretend that this conversation we've just had is um, going to be an introduction of some kind to educators who might take UDL. Maybe they're hearing it for the first time. Maybe they've heard a little bit about it and they've started to dig in. But but let's pretend this conversation is kind of the end of their intro and they get to hear from some experts in this space. And being that UDL is, is a practice um, uh, we can define expertise along a spectrum of, of in all kinds of ways. So um, taking your expertise from where it comes, each of you, um, can you just offer a thought about if you had one thing to, a, to an educator who's considering UDL in their practice for the first time, um, what's the thing they should... Um, take from the sort of uh, this conversation and the importance uh, of this work into their next step. Maya, do you want to go first? Um, sure. Um, I think there's a lot that I would say to a teacher, and we've already said, you know, start small and grow, right? That would be the first thing I would say, but that's already been said here. Um, I think what I would say is that um, 
especially for those teachers who have used universal design for learning in other content areas. Um, when you're learning computer science education for the first time, a lot of teachers feel like there's something so different in terms of pedagogy that the uh, strategies that have worked um, for other subject areas are going to be completely different here. So one of the things I would say is start with what works in the other content areas. So if you're applying universal design for learning in your math instruction or in your science instruction, those same approaches will likely work within computer science education. Um, at least that's what we've seen. And obviously there'll be some tweaks, but I think that making that explicit is really important for teachers. Great. Meg, how about you? Yeah, I guess uh, what I would leave teachers with is this idea that um, universal design for learning is not just for disability or not about disability. Um, it's about meeting the needs of every learner where they're at, um, no matter what their learning differences are. And that may include, uh, you know, very gifted students um, that may um, include students all over the spectrum. And that sort of gets into this idea that they're just, there is not a normal student that all of that is sort of we've constructed and sort of uh, decided what is normal and shifting to our students are different and we're just going to meet their needs regardless of their uh, their label. Um, and, you know, a lot of times we get frustrated because special education services are limited based on a label. Uh, we're limited in what we can do for certain kids and whether or not they have a label. And with universal design for learning, we're not limited. Um, we can meet everyone's needs. Great, Ron. So one, thank you Maya and Meg for sharing all that. Um, I'll simply add on to this by saying to remember that UDL and practice are something that we all have to take the time to learn and reflect on. Um, and I bet we've been doing a great job in it in our classroom and maybe we've just never made the connection. But you have to continue, um, fellow educators, to push the idea as Meg said and as Maya said that we are trying to meet students where they need us to be. And if you do that, the computer science implementation that happens in your classroom will mm. be easy because you understand that it's not necessarily content that is the most important. It's about the approach. I thank all of you for the, the great conversation. And, um, and I am eager to uh, come back and talk more um, in the future. So thanks for spending a little bit of your Saturday with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me. Mark Lesser, a learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.